What are the deepest views of human dignity, or of words, or of truth, or of freedom, or of justice, peace, and so on? Mm. They're in the Bible. Yeah. And we've got to explore them. So the idea from a gentleman not too far from you, Jonathan, who said we've got to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Very nice. That's absolute disaster. Yeah. Yeah, dear guy, but dead wrong. Yeah. We've got to explore the Old Testament as never before. And then, of course, we can understand why the new is so wonderful. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Today, it is my special privilege to have Oz Guinness on the program with us. Oz is an author and social critic. He's written untold amounts of books. He's just like Dad. And it seems you have a new book out every six months or so, Oz. Is that is that sort of the pattern? You get two out a year. Well, usually one a year, but COVID gave me the chance to write a lot more. Oh, well, I love it. Many of our listeners will, of course, be familiar with you, but there may be a few out there who don't. We have somewhat of an international audience, and I know that you have a very international background, having been born in China and raised in China and educated in England. There's a couple of things. I'm sure people are seeing the name Guinness and wondering, is there a connection with the brewery? And of course there is. But I wonder if you tell us a little bit of your family history, uh, and then we'll get to your own personal story. Well, you're right. I'm descended from Arthur Guinness, the brewer. My ancestor was his youngest son. He was an evangelical. Hmm. He came to Christ, to faith, under the preaching of John Wesley in the revival that took place in the late 1730s, early 1740s. Hmm. So he called himself born again back in those days and founded Ireland's first Sunday school, which, of course, in those days was a rather radical proposition, teaching people who couldn't go to ordinary schools. And in the very beginning, care for the poor, Mm. for the workers and things like that was built into the brewery and the whole Mm -hmm. family uh, status in Dublin. So that was the ancestor. And I'm descended from a branch of the family that's kept the faith ever since. My great-grandfather, Arthur's grandson, at the age of 23, was the leading preacher in the Irish revival of 1859. And we have newspaper accounts of crowds, 25, 30,000, and of course, no microphone. He'd climb onto the back of a carriage and preach, and the spirit would fall. And Ireland was not divided in those days. But in that part of the country, in the year after the revival, there was literally only one recorded crime. Unbelievable. It shows you how profound revival can be. Isn't it? (laughs) His son, my grandfather, was one of the first Western doctors to go to China. He treated the Empress Dowager, the last emperor. And my parents were born in China, so I was born in China. So part of the family that's Mm. kept faith ever since the first author. Yeah. So you, you had mentioned that this is a branch of the family. Is there a branch of the family that's gone uh, a different trajectory? 
Well, for a long time, the brewing family was strongly Christian, but then eventually, sadly, wealth probably undermined part of the heart of the faith. But as I said, my family has kept it. They often say there are brewing Guinnesses, banking Guinnesses, and then they call them the Guinnesses for God or the poor Guinnesses. Just an amazing uh, family lineage, and you're thinking of uh, just that the covenantal family through that line. And so you've got a book that came out uh, this year, uh, The Great Quest, Invitation to the Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning. And I know in the book, you share a little bit of your own search for meaning and finding, because uh, we all know that Christianity is really the only faith you cannot be born into in terms of you can be born into a, a covenant home and be taught the lessons of Christ and the church, and but it's really a, a faith that has to become your own. It's not the faith that is transferred to to the child. So, so tell us a little bit about your own story and your own coming to faith in Christ. Well, I was born in China, as I said, and my first ten years were uh, pretty rough with war, famine revolution, all sorts of things. Um, I was there for two years under Mao's reign of terror. Right. And then 51, two years after the revolution, my parents were allowed to send me home to England, and they were under house arrest for another two years. So I had most of my teenage years apart from my parents, and my own coming to faith was really a kind of partly the witness of a friend at school, but partly an intellectual search. I was reading, on the one hand, great atheists like Nietzsche and Sartre and my own hero, Albert Camus. And on the other hand, Christians like Blaise Pascal and G.K. Chesterton and, of course, C.S. Lewis. And at the end of that time, I was thoroughly convinced the Christian faith was true. Mm. And so I became a Christian before I went to university in London, and I'm glad I did because the 60s was a crazy decade. Drugs, sex, rock and roll, the counterculture, everything had to be thought back to square one. You really had to know what you believed, why you believed what you believed, or the whole onslaught was against you, which is a bracing decade to come to faith. It really is. Well, I wonder if you could walk me through that a little bit. I've read some of Camus and Sartre, and they're just such polar opposites about humanity and God. And and what were some of the things that helped you navigate through that terrain? Well, I personally never liked Sartre. He was a goldfish. And even later, when I went to La Brie with Francis Schaeffer, we met people who studied under Sartre and people who'd known Camus. Camus was warm, passionate. There are stories, we don't know whether they're true or not, or just a rumor, that he was actually baptized just before he died uh, in a car crash in January 1960. I don't know if that's true or not, or whether it's a kind of deathbed conversion, but certainly his philosophy is profoundly human, and that's what I loved about so much of it. But Mm. at the end of the day, not adequate. Mm. And you know his famous myth of Sisyphus, Yes. He rolls the stone up the hill, rolls down again, rolls up, rolls down again, and so on. A gigantic defiance against the absurdity of the universe, but with no real answers. And, of course, that's Mm. what we have in the gospel. Mm. That's right, and it's it's sort of the meaninglessness of life, and it's – I know a lot of – 
high school, college students, even seminary students have been deeply affected by uh, some of his writing and have certainly felt, I think, what you're touching into there, which is that uh, deeply personal, uh, there's a lot of reflection in there that I think resounds with people. But as you said, it, it leaves you with nothing at the end of the day. So you've written quite a number of books across quite a, a range of topics. What is it that sort of stokes your fire, what, that kind of drives you? What's sort of your, uh, I know the Bible uses passion in a very negative, sinful sense, but uh, it's a word we use a lot today. But what is the passion that's driving you uh, in your writings and your, your speaking? Well, you can never reduce it easily, but two things above all. One, making sense of the gospel to our crazy modern world. Mm. On the other hand, trying to understand the world so that responsible people can live in the world knowing where we are. Mm. Because in terms of the second, I think one of the things in the scriptures as a whole which is much missing in the American church today, is the biblical view of time. You take the idea of the signs of the times, David's men or our Lord's rebuked his generation. They could read the weather, but they missed the signs of the times. So you get that incredible notion of uh, St. Paul talking about King David. He served God's purpose in his generation. That's an incredible idea that you so understand your generation that in some small, inadequate way, we're each serving God's purpose as salt and light and so on in our generation. But many Americans and many people around the whole world, they don't have that sense of time that you see in Scripture. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe growing up in revolutionary China, I've always had an incredible sense of time. Mm that's encouraging to hear. I think in our society, we get so fixated and caught up on the issues, but there's almost this moment of needing to pull back and observe things from a higher perspective. And I think you do such a a fantastic job of that. Okay, let's walk through some of your more recent books, and then maybe you could kind of uh, get a peek under the curtain of what's coming, uh, because I think you've got a couple of books that are are on their way out. The Magna Carta of Humanity, this idea of... uh, Sinai and the French Revolution as it sort of relates to the American Revolution. Tell us a little bit about the impetus for this and and the thought process towards that. Well, the American crisis at its deepest is the great polarization today. But many people, I think, don't go down to the why. Mm -hmm. They blame it on the social media or former president and his tweets or the coastals against the heartlanders and so on. But I think the deepest things are those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, which was largely, sadly not completely, Christian because it went back to the Jewish Torah. And those who understand America from the perspective of ideas coming down from the French Revolution, because postmodernism, radical multiculturalism, the cancel culture, critical theory, all these things, the sexual revolution. They come from the ideas descended from Paris, not from anything to do with the Bible. Yeah, We've got to understand that. Now, the more positive way of looking at that, many Americans have no idea mm-hmm. how the American Revolution came from the Scriptures, mm-hmm. how notions like covenant became constitution, the consent of the governed or the separation of powers go on down the line. 
you have a rich, deep understanding in the Torah, the first mm. five books of the Bible. And we've got to understand that if we know how to champion these things today. But it's not just a matter of nostalgia or defending the past. I personally am passionately convinced this is the secret to the human future. Mm. What are the deepest views of human dignity or of words or of truth or of freedom or of justice, peace, and so on? Mm. They're in the Bible. Yeah. And we've got to explore them. So the idea from a gentleman not too far from you, Jonathan, who said we've got to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Very nice. That's an absolute disaster. Yeah. Yeah, dear guy, but dead wrong. Yeah. We've got to explore the Old Testament as never before. And then, of course, we can understand why the new is so wonderful. Yeah. You know, uh, just going down that track a little bit, I mean, that's right. You can't have the New Testament without the Old Testament. The prophecies of Christ, the fulfillment, it it all falls apart. The whole argumentation, everything becomes almost meaningless at that point. And I know the argument is that it's about the event of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But you don't have those apart from Genesis 3, Mm-hmm. Really, of course, Genesis 1, all the way through till, you know, the end of Malachi. You can't just sort of separate these two testamental periods. It's ludicrous, and it, and it creates so much damage, as you've said. Well, you know, you take some of the myths that are around today that are very common even in evangelical circles. You know, the Old Testament's about law, the New Testament's about love. Right. That's not right. That's a slander on the Jews. Read the beginning of Deuteronomy. They're yeah. called, the Jew is a nation. They're called to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and so on. Right. Why did the Lord choose them? Because he loved them yeah. and set his affection on them. And you can see in Deuteronomy there's a link between liberty and loyalty and mm. love. Mm. So right through the scriptures, those who abandon the truth, mm. apostasy, that's equivalent to adultery. Yeah. Why? To love the Lord is to be loyal to the Lord and faithful to the Lord and mm-hmm. so on. And we've got to see there's a tremendous amount about love, loyalty connected with liberty. Mm. So, I, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of professors writing in the New York Times said the Constitution is broken and it shouldn't be reclaimed. We need to move on, scrap it. Do away with it, yeah. Popular democracy. Now, the trouble is constitutions become a matter of lawyers, law courts, the rule of law only, Supreme Court. No, comes from covenant. Yeah. Covenant's all about freely chosen consent, a morally binding pledge. So Mm. the heart of freedom is the freedom of the heart. And we've got to get back. This is all there in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Did the Jews fail? Of course. That's why our Lord. But equally, the church is failing today. So we've got so much to learn from the best and the worst of the experience of the Jews in the Old Testament. But to ignore the old is absolute folly. Well, in thinking about the American Revolution, you think of the impact of of men, as you've already cited with your own family history of, of Wesley and, and, and the preaching of George Whitfield uh, in the Americas, which would have had a profound effect uh, on the American psyche and I, I think would have contributed a great deal to 
a lot of the writing of law and, and constitutional ideology. Well, the revival had a huge yes. impact on all that created the revolution. But some of the ideas go back, I think, to the Reformation, not so much to Luther at this point, but to Calvin mm. and Zwingli, Bullinger, in Scotland, John Knox, and in England, Oliver Cromwell. You know, that whole notion of covenant. I mean, Cromwell mm. said and a lot of weird ideas came up in the 17th century. But the 17th century is called the biblical century. Why? Mm. Because through the Reformation, they discovered, rediscovered, what was called the Hebrew Republic. In other words, the constitution the Lord gave to the founding of his own people. Mm. And so even like someone, Thomas Hobbes, who is an atheist, they're discussing the Hebrew Republic. In other words, Exodus and Deuteronomy. It had a tremendous impact on the rise of modern notions of freedom. And we've got to understand that. So the Mayflower Compact is a covenant. Yeah. John Winthrop on the Abella is talking about covenant. When John Adams writes the first constitution written one in this country, which is the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, he calls it a covenant. Hmm. And the American constitution is essentially a national, somewhat secularized form of covenant. And we who are heirs of that as followers of Jesus, we've got to re-explore it and realize its richness today. I mean, you just turn on the news today and it feels like we're quite a distance from that. I mean, even thinking about, uh, you know, using a word like justice, all this uh, now it seems like, to your point, this uh, ideology from the French Revolution has really come to the forefront, certainly in the 60s, but it's, it's, there seems to be a new revival of this What's contributing to that today in America? Well, James Billington, the former librarian of Congress, and others have looked at the French Revolution. And you remember, it only lasted 10 years in France. Then came dictator Napoleon. But it was like a gigantic volcanic explosion. And out of it came three main lava flows. The first one we often ignore, which is called revolutionary nationalism in the 19th century France and so on. Mm. You can ignore that mostly, except it's very important behind the Chinese today. But the second one is the one people are aware of, revolutionary socialism, or in one word, communism. The Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution. We're actually experiencing the impact of the third lava flow, revolutionary liberationism, which is not Mm. classical Marxism, communism, but cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism. And that goes back to a gentleman called Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s. Now, you mentioned the 60s. It became very important in the 60s because Gramsci's ideas were picked up by the Frankfurt School in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm. And the leading thinker in America in the 60s was Herbert Marcuse, who in many ways is the godfather of the new left in the 60s. Mm. I first came here in 68 as a tourist. Six weeks. A hundred cities were burning, far worse Mm. than 2020. Because of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Senator Kennedy. But here's the point the radicals knew that for all the radicalism in the streets, anti Vietnam protests and so on, they wouldn't win in the streets. 
So they had to do what they called, copying Mao Zedong, a long march through the institutions. In other mm. words, not the streets. Right. Go slowly, gradually, win the colleges and universities, win right. the press and media, win the, what they called the culture industry, Hollywood, entertainment, and then sweep around and win the whole culture. Now, here we are more than 50 years later. They've done it. Now, in the early days, I'm a European still. I'm not American. People would never have believed that the radical left would influence what were called the fortresses of American conservatism, business, finance, the military. But all of those in the form of wokeism have been profoundly affected today. So America's at an extraordinary point in terms of the radical left being more powerful even than the French Revolution. Mm. Okay, so in thinking through that lines of reasoning, the people who are caught up in that today, the, the radicalism, is this just indoctrination? Is it all intentional, right? Is it like Marcuso's intentionality of going through the halls of academia? Or is it rather that they've just been raised to think that this is just the way that it's the most opportune way to get your ideology out there? No, it's, it's thoroughly intentional. But of course, mm. always there's a creative minority who eventually win over the majority who are hardly aware of it. Yeah. So you mentioned justice. Mm. I was on calls with Californian pastors last year, and I said to them, you brothers have drunk the Kool-Aid. Mm. They didn't realize how much of their understanding of justice owed everything to the radical left and nothing, say, to the Hebrew prophets. So you know how the left operate. It analyzes discourse. How do ordinary people speak? And so you look for majority, minority, the oppressors, the victims. When you found a, the victim, which is a group, not an individual, you weaponize them hmm. and set up a constant conflict of powers in order to subvert the status quo. But as the Romans point out, if you only have power, no truth. And remember, in the postmodern world, God is dead for them. Right. Truth is completely dead following Nietzsche. So mm -hmm. all that's left is power. And the only possible outcome, if you think it through logically, which they don't, is what the Romans call the peace of despotism. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have a power so unrivaled, Central, it can put yeah. down every other power. You have peace. But it's authoritarian. That's where we're going increasingly today. You take the high-tech media and so on. Mm. A very dangerous moment for freedom of conscience, for freedom of speech, and for freedom of assembly. America is really fighting for its life. Mm. But sadly, it's not. Most people are asleep. Well, and that's right. That's sort of the hinge point, isn't it? So let's talk just briefly about uh, the education system. We're thinking sort of elementary, middle school, high school education system. So here in Atlanta, there's sort of options that are presented to parents, right? There's the public school system. There's the private, often Christian private school system. And then there's a homeschool option. And parents are all trying to navigate this. Now, I'm sure you've heard arguments that it's you can send your kids to the public school because if Christians abandon the public school, then... You know, where's the witness? Where's the influence with the greater population who are just 
asleep or, or whatever it is, if you send them out to the private school, your children will be protected. But, you know, how much exposure are they getting to, you know, thoughts and philosophies that, you know, if you sort of rein them in, and I guess this is really more to the homeschool spectrum, which is the almost like an overprotection. These kids go to university and it's the first exposure they've had to some of these thoughts and professors are going out of their way to convince these students that the way that they were raised was very fallen, broken. Their parents were brainwashing them, et cetera. So, you know, and just thinking about some of those uh, differing options and thought process, how do you think through that as a thinker, as a social critic, as a Christian? How do you weigh into that? Well, you try and sort of isolate some of the different factors. So you've been talking rightly about the personal and the family concerns, which mm. are fundamental. Absolutely. And I think that very much varies with the child. But with all of them, whether it's homeschooling or whatever, you want to keep them ahead of the game so they know what's coming. Francis Schaeffer often used to stress that. So people go to a secular university, keep them ahead of the game so they know what's coming. And they know some preliminary apologetics so they know how to make a good stand and be faithful without being washed away. Mm. You've also, in other words, what you said is fundamental. I agree with it. But there's also a national uh, dimension. Hmm. So the public schools, and I'm not arguing everyone has to go to them, but they were very, very important because they were the center of passing on the unum hmm. of the a pluribus unum out of many, one. one. Put it this way, as the Jews put it, if any project lasts longer than a single generation, you need families you need schools, you need history. Mm. It doesn't get passed on. So what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? He never mentioned freedom. He never mentioned the promised land of milk and honey. Right. He told them how to tell their story to children so that freedom could last. Mm. Now, the public schools used to do that. So you had people from Ireland or Italy or China or Mexico. didn't matter because the public schools gave them civic education, the UNAM. Now, that was thrown out at the end of the 60s. In came Howard Zinn and his alternative views, and more recently, the 1619 Project. So the public school, as a way of Americanizing and integrating, collapsed. Mm. That's a disaster for the republic. Now, take the added one that President Biden has added, Mm. immigration. As scholars put it, it's still relatively easy to become an American, get your papers, your ID, and so on. It's almost impossible now to know what it is to be American. And particularly, you say the four million who've come in in the last, in the Biden years, they're not going to be inducted into American citizenship. So the notion of citizenship collapses through the public schools and through an open border. It's just a folly beyond any words. It is historic, unprecedented folly, an absolute disaster. Hmm. Now, of course, we've got to say, you back to your original question, the same is true not only of freedom but of faith. So parents handing on, transmitting to their kids, very, very important. I, w- I would add one, on, one more thing, Jonathan. Yeah. It's very much different children. My own son, whom <laughs> I adore, is a little bit of a contrarian. 
if he'd gone to a Christian college, he might have become a rebel. Right. And some of the poorer things that some of them. He went to a big public university, University of Virginia, and it cemented and deepened his faith because he stood against the tide and he Mm. came out with a much stronger faith than when he went in. Mm. I love that. I think you're right on with that. And I think it's good for people to hear and know the history and and have awareness of this. Now, I want to make a very subtle and gentle shift. And if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But you are a British citizen. Am I correct on that? I am. Queen Elizabeth has passed, and um, now it's King Charles III, and uh, there's much talk about comments he's made in the past in terms of the defender of the faith. I read a quote from uh, Ian Bradley, who's a professor at the University of St. Andrews, who says that Charles's faith is more spiritual and intellectual. He's more of a spiritual seeker. Is this sort of a microcosm of what's happening in the UK, this sort of shift from the Queen and who very much had a very Christocentric faith to Charles and sort of, you know, emphasis on global warming and different issues of the day? Is this sort of a a microcosm of what we're seeing? Well, the Queen had a faith that was very real and very deep, Hmm. and she was enormously helped by people like Billy Graham. And Billy Graham introduced her to John Stott and so Mm. on. So her faith was very, very genuine. Mm. His, he's probably got more of an appreciation for the Christian faith than many European leaders today. Mm. So the Christian faith made Western civilization, and yet most of the intelligentsia in Europe have abandoned the faith that made it. So Prince Charles, as you say, a rather new age spirituality, and he's extraordinarily open to Islam through money from Saudi Arabia. I don't have the highest hopes for him, although I must say the challenge of being king will remind him of the best of his mother. And mm-hmm. that's even when the archbishop said in the sermon that uh, he wanted people to know that Prince Charles had a Christian faith, I thought it was a glimmer of the fact he realizes you know, his mother's position was wonderful. So Mm. it's very much open. Mm. Now, I, as an Anglican, as you are, back in 1937, the greatest of all the Catholic historians on Western civilization predicted, this is 1937, almost a century ago, that the day would come Mm. in some future coronation when people would raise the question, was it all a gigantic bluff because the power of the monarchy and more importantly, the credibility of the faith had both undermined themselves to such an extent Mm. didn't mean anything. Mm. I think we're incredibly close to that uh, with King Charles. Mm. I also think sadly that the Archbishop of Canterbury who preached wonderfully well yesterday has done a good job in the celebrations and so on, the pageantry, but does a rotten job in leading the church as the church. And so the Church of England is in deep trouble Mm. in terms of its abandoning orthodoxy. Mm. It's a very critical moment. Will Charles go deeper or revert to the way he's been for the last few decades? I don't know. Mm. I'm watching. Yeah. And then sort of transitioning from there to, 
what you see as faith in the United States. I think you have a new book coming out, Zero Hour America, History's Ultimatum Over Freedom and the Answer We Must Give. Let's bridge that gap between trajectory in the UK and now in the United States. What similarities and differences are you seeing? Well, in Europe, the great rival to the Christian faith was in the 18th century, the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And it's almost completely swept the intelligentsia of Europe. Until recently, America was not fully going that way. And in the last decade or so, truly has the rise of the religious nuns, etc., etc. So in most areas that are intellectual, America too has abandoned the faith that made it. And of course, part of the American tragedy is the intelligentsia have not only abandoned the faith that made America, they've abandoned the revolution that made America. Mm. So you have a double crisis here. Now, I'm like you, a follower of Jesus. Mm. I'm absolutely undaunted. The Christian faith, if it's true, would be true if no one believed it. Right. So the rise of the nuns or whatever just means a lot of people didn't realize in what sense that they was, they're spineless. If it was mm-hmm. true, it's not a matter of a popularity or a polls. I like the old saying, damn the polls and think for yourself. And Americans are far too other directed. The polls are often badly formulated in terms of their questions. The question is, is the faith true? And what are the answers it gives us to lead our lives well? Mm-hmm. And I have no question. It's not only good news. It is the best news ever in terms of where humanity is today. Mm -hmm. So this is an extraordinary moment Mm -hmm. to be a follower of Jesus. We have Mm -hmm. the guardianship and the championship of the greatest news ever. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, and let's make one final link there, which is we've talked a lot about Western countries, uh, the UK, the U.S., but you were born and um, spent quite a lot of time in China. Let's think about not necessarily specifically China, but non-Western countries. You travel quite frequently. What are you seeing in, in those non-Western countries that uh, you know perhaps is giving you hope or, or um, positivity? Well, you promised to Abraham, in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. DNA is in the heart of the scriptures. And of course, our Lord's great commission. But as we look around the world today, thank God the Christian faith Mm. is the most populous faith on the earth. Mm. So the one place it's not doing well is the highly modernized West. Mm. It is flourishing in sub-Saharan Africa, or in Asia, you know, where I happened to be born in China, nothing to do with me, was the most rapid growth, exponential growth of the mm-hmm. church in 2,000 years. So I have no fear for the faith at all. And, of course, we believe it's true. Mm-hmm. But the question is, will the West return to the faith that made it? And I hope that our sisters and brothers in the global south will help us come back just as we took the faith to them. And I know many African brothers and sisters and many Korean brothers and sisters, Chinese too. That's their passion, Mm. and we must welcome it. I know so many Koreans. What incredible people of prayer. Up at five, thousands of them praying together. You know, when I was a boy in England, prayer meetings were strong in churches. 
they're not strong in most American churches today. We've become highly secularized. So we've got a huge amount to learn from the scriptures, of course, above all, but from our brothers and sisters in the rest of the world, reminding us of what we used to believe and we've lost. Mm. What a great reminder. Well, Oz Guinness, I know you've you've got a busy schedule, and we're so grateful that you've taken the time to be on Candid Conversations. We've talked about quite a lot. We're going to put a link to your website in our show notes and um, all fantastic books that you've uh, you've put out and new ones coming out. We look forward to hopefully having you on again in the future. Well, thank you. Real privilege to be on with you. God bless you. Thank you. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.